0: My name is Becky Ames, and my husband Keith and I have been coming here to Windsor Road for about the last nine years. Uh, This morning I'd like to share with you a little bit about our story, our story of radical pain, of radical suffering, and of radical healing. To give you a little bit of background, my husband Keith and I have been together since high school. We are high school sweethearts, and uh, we got married 13 years ago. We decided in 2001 to start a family, and along came our daughter, Mallory. My pregnancy, although miserable from morning sickness, was fairly normal and routine. When Mallory was four, we decided it was time to try to give her a sibling. I was thrilled to find out in December of 2005 that I was pregnant. I bought Mallory a shirt that said, I'm the big sister, and she wanted to be the one to go down the stairs when Daddy came home from work and give him the big news. We were so excited and rejoiced over the news of the pending pregnancy. Before we knew it, the day came in that pregnancy for our 18-week ultrasound. We were so excited to find out if this was going to be a boy or another little girl. The technician performing the ultrasound seemed much more focused and not as talkative as she was with Mallory. Later, the doctor joined us to go over the results. She told us that our little girl was developing on schedule, seemed to be normal in size, and expressed that there were a couple of things she wanted to look into, but at this time she didn't think it was anything to to worry about, just something to keep an eye on. Little did we know how radically our lives were about to change. After a two-hour-long ultrasound with the specialist, he told us that our little girl had multiple abnormalities and was most likely caused by a condition called trisomy 18. Trisomy 18 is a chromosomal abnormality that occurs in one out of every 3,000 births. Most trisomy babies die in utero in the first trimester, and the condition is rarely compatible with life. I can't tell you how radically our lives changed in that moment. Radical, life-altering pain. We walked out of the room, went into the bathroom across the hall, and collapsed in each other's arms. Why? How? What did I do wrong? Were all questions I begged my husband to answer. I remember going to our small group meeting that Sunday night and telling everybody what had happened. We were surrounded by these families who'd become our closest friends, and they began to pray over me. We were on the front porch of our small group's hearts, and they responded with radical love. Brenda laid hands on my belly as she began to petition God to intervene. She prayed for a miracle— a complete healing, the kind that when the doctor saw this healing, they would know that there was nothing short of a miracle. She gave me a list of scriptures to cling to, and from that day on, I prayed these scriptures and asked for God's strength, his guidance, and for complete healing for our little girl. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Psalm 147, 3, The Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. As time passed, I became certain that God was answering our prayers as we prayed them. I fully believed that he was healing our little girl completely and began praising him from that day forward for what he had done. Each Sunday at small group, all the adults would form a circle around us. One would lay a hand on me, one on Keith, and they would begin to petition God on our behalf. I can't tell you how much it helped to have this group of people who had grown to become our family love us enough to pray for a complete healing for our daughter. Their support was amazing. Bottom line, they were our lifeline. The next sonogram date, and we had an anxious amount of hope. In earlier tests, she couldn't open her hands because with the condition, they were clubbed and clenched shut. But the sweetest moment happened when as we looked at the ultrasound screen, she raised three little fingers, as if she was saying hello. We finally had hope. We thought God had given us the miracle that we had prayed for. Little did we know, she was waving goodbye. That was the last time we saw our little girl alive. A week and a half after that, I hadn't held her move for several hours, so we went to the doctor to be told that her heart had stopped beating. There are no words for the pain that we felt, A part of me died that day. We prayed to God for help, for comfort, and for strength, as we had to go home to tell Mallory, how do you tell a four-year-old that she's not going to have a little sister to play with? Amazingly, this little girl helped us get through the entire ordeal. We had to proceed forward with daily life and begin to plan a funeral for our little Whitney We called our small group, and many of them came to our house the day we came home from the hospital to hold us, to pray with us, and just be with us, because there were times when we didn't know what to do with our next breath. I still remember being in the delivery room the day I was induced, and three of the women from our small group walked in with all of this food into the delivery room for my husband to have and into the waiting rooms for our families to take part of while they waited. I don't know what we would have done without them. They had gone to my house while we were at the hospital and cleaned my house from top to bottom and made all of the food necessary so that our family could have lunch after the funeral. Whitney Cole was born into heaven on July 30th at 10.10 p.m., weighing one pound, 4.4 ounces, and was 11 inches long. Looking at her and holding her for those precious hours were the most surreal moments in our lives. We held her, we cried, we took pictures and tried to capture a lifetime full of memories in just a couple of hours. While we still don't know why this happened to us, we've been able to answer a different question. What now? Since Whitney's death, God has radically blessed us in so many ways. I met Megan Druis, a friend of mine from Windsor Road, who had also lost a child. And we started a support group called Empty Arms for parents who've suffered infant loss. In the five years that we've had this group, we've had the privilege of meeting so many women who've gone through similar struggles. It's a lifelong process. It's not something that you just get over. A year and a half after Whitney died, we found out we were expecting our third child. It seemed like all of that fear and pain returned. I was so frightened that something would happen to this baby, too. Pregnancy's really scary after you lose a child. God's strength is the only thing that got us through. In July 2008, we were blessed with a healthy baby boy, Trevor Allen. It's important to understand that your next baby doesn't replace the one that you lost. They're totally separate. But it's wonderful to know that God loved me enough to bless me with this life. I can look back now and see all of the blessings that I would have missed if God hadn't chose Whitney to go to heaven. I'm proud to say that we have survived radical pain, radical suffering, and radical healing. We've been leaders for our small group for the last few years. We met each week in somebody's home to visit, to study scripture, and to be the hands and feet of Christ to one another. I can't imagine going through life without this great group of people. We've gone through loss, life, birth, struggles with our kids, divorce, marriage, home remodeling, and the list goes on. We also have a lot of fun. We hold Wii tournaments to just dance where the men all participate. We have marathons together where we're running in races. We just do life together. They may be called small groups, but ours has had a radical impact on our lives. Thank you.
1: In 1999, uh, Holocaust survivor Ellie Wies- Wiesel, uh, gave a speech before Congress, and the speech was entitled. The perils of indifference. The perils of indifference. I want you to listen to these words. Diesel writes, what is indifference? Well, the word means no difference. A strange and a natural state in which the lines blur between light and darkness, dusk and dawn, crime and punishment, cruelty and compassion, good and evil. Can one possibly view indifference as a virtue? Is it necessary at times to practice indifference simply to keep one's sanity? Live normally, enjoy a fine meal and a glass of wine as the world around us experiences harrowing upheavals? Indifference can be tempting, even seductive. It's so much easier to look away from victims. It's so much easier to avoid such rude interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. It is, after all, awkward, troublesome to be involved in another person's pain and despair. Yet for the person who is indifferent, his or her neighbor are of no consequence, and therefore their lives are meaningless. Their anguish is of no interest. Indifference reduces the other to an abstraction. And that's why indifference is more dangerous than anger. I mean, at least anger can be creative. When you're angry, you can write a poem. When you're angry, you can uh, compose a great symphony. One does something special for the sake of humanity because you're angry at the injustice that you see. But indifference is never, ever creative, ever. Even hatred may elicit a response. You fight it, you denounce it, you disarm it. Indifference, indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. And therefore, indifference is not a beginning. Indifference is an end. And that makes indifference always the friend of the enemy. Because indifference always benefits the aggressor never the victim whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. The political prisoner in his cell, hungry children, the homeless refugees, a mourning mother. Not to respond to their plight, not to relieve their solitude by offering them a spark of hope is to exile them from human memory. And in denying their humanity, we betray our own. Ellie Wiesel, the perils of indifference the perils of indifference we're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that I think could be titled the perils of indifference if you have your Bibles I'd like you to turn to the New Testament gospel of Luke chapter 16 Luke chapter 16 and Jesus tells a parable in verses 19 through 31. This is really the third in a trilogy of parables in these verses. In Luke chapter 15, we hear about a son who squandered his father's possessions. In Luke chapter 16, at the beginning we hear of a parable regarding an employee who squandered his boss's possessions. And in this parable, we read of one who squandered his own possessions. A parable regarding the perils of indifference. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and a fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar. Two men. Two radically different lives, both in a picture of indifference. One man was affluent. The other was impoverished. Jesus says that one was clothed with the finest wardrobe, the finest. He was dressed in uh, his robe was an expensively dyed purple, which in that day was just the the elite. And he wore this every day. He had other clothes, but displaying his purpleness was important. Fine, fine threads of purple. People could see his affluence, and, and, and notice Jesus also says he not only was attired in purple dyed garment, but, but he had also fine linens. Well, that, that, would, that would refer to elite Egyptian cotton that he wore underneath. I, I think there's a, a slight humor there. Jesus is saying, and if you must know, the guy bought his underwear at Neiman Marcus as opposed to Walmart. Huh? One clothed with the finest wardrobe. The other was clothed in ulcerated sores, kind of like Job in the Old Testament. One of them was put at a daily banquet feast. A daily banquet feast. That's what's behind the phrase lived in luxury every day. A daily banquet. Uh, there's an implication in the word daily, meaning the guy didn't observe the Sabbath, didn't go to synagogue. Why? Because he was too busy at the banquet. And the implication behind the banquet is that he didn't eat alone. He had rich friends who came with him, who every day walked through those gates and sat around the table, and there they ate. One was placed around a banquet table, the other was placed at the gate. Was placed, was laid. That's in the passive, implying that he was disabled, he was crippled, he couldn't get there himself. Could not walk, and there he starved. And verse 21 says that 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 you know, one feasted sumptuously. Verse 21 says, the other longed to be satisfied from that which fell from the table. And what would that have been? Oh, bread. Just bread. I mean in in that kind of a banquet feast, uh, in addition to the olives and the cheeses and the meats and the vegetables and all of the spread there would be there would be bread, probably like pita bread, the kind of flat bread and, and bread that would be used for dipping and 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 Especially in uh, tables of luxury, the bread would also kind of be utilized as a napkin because you know you would dip the bread uh, in the gravy you'd also get some gravy on your fingers, and so you would just wipe the your fingers off on the uh, you know on the bread to get the gravy off and then what you would do you would just kind of toss it over your shoulder and where the dogs would lap it up that 's what 's going on here, and in village life, the distance between uh, the gate and the banquet table well that was within earshot i could hear what my neighbors are saying from my patio and their patio i could hear what's going on huh? do you get the picture here every day in the village a group of well-dressed overfed affluent somebodies stepped over a disabled sickly starving gaunt nobody And they proceeded to recline at a banquet table, wolfing down the finest foods near the gate where guard dogs were posted to keep the nobodies out. What a picture of indifference. And verse 21 says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now that could mean one, possibly two things. One you know besides all of this besides the fact that the guy was crippled besides the fact that the guy was starving besides the banquet that was going on you know unclean hebrew dogs came and licked his wounds you know besides all this the dogs piled on that's one take on that verse another uh, would sound something like this even though even though, you know, even, even though he was ignored, even though he was stepped over, even though he was starving, even though that banquet was going on, dogs came. In other words, the only friends he had were dogs who came and licked his wounds. The only medicinal support he had were the dogs who came and licked his sores. On one side of the gate, there was a guy who had servants. On the other side of the gate, there was a guy who had no servants, just dogs. Two men, two radically different lives and one picture of indifference. But did you you catch the biggest difference? I haven't even mentioned that yet. You catch the biggest difference here? Did you catch it? their identities. Now this is important. This is the only parable that Christ told where the characters are given names. Names. Absolutely. Yeah. And in your name, you know, your your name is just not someone, you know, like on a name tag. Your, Your name, your name is about, you know, your name is your identity and to know your identity is to know who you are, It's to know what gives you worth or significance. And it's to know your life purpose. That's what an identity is. And here were the identities, their names. First of all, rich man. I mean, that was his name. uh, One scholar argues, no, that that was the name that Jesus gave this guy, rich man, rich man. And when you think about that, And what an identity is, who you are, what your life purpose is, what gives you significance and worth, well, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Rich man. And then there was Lazarus. You know what Lazarus means? It's intentionally given. God is my help. God is my help. Yeah. Two radically different men occupy a picture of indifference. And then something happened. You know what happened? Both of them died. We're told about this. Lazarus dies. We're not really told about his funeral. I don't think he had one. I think he was just thrown in a mass grave, a pauper's grave. The rich man, though, oh, yeah. The rich man, verse 22, also died and was buried. Now, culturally, the very next line in the parable should read, and from hell, Lazarus. And from hell, Lazarus. Because culturally, in the first century, most Jews just assumed that there was a link between sin and suffering. Uh, A pretty much absolute link between sin and suffering. I mean, don't we see this in the book of Job? Aren't Job's friends trying to convince him to repent of his sin so that, you know, because that's why he's suffering. They're they're just absolutely convinced. The reason why you're suffering is because you've sinned. Repent of your sin, and things will go better for you. And this carried on down through the centuries to where even in the first century, John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and they see a, a man who uh, was blind, a man who was born blind from birth, and and they're walking along, and 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 they you know see this guy, and 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 he's within earshot. The disciples say, "Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" The guy wasn't deaf; he could hear them say that. So it was just assumed that you know sin and suffering are linked. And that's why the Hebrew listener there is just waiting for and in hell, Lazarus. And this is where Jesus turns the parable on its head. And he says that the angels in verse 22 came and carried Lazarus to uh, Abraham's side. Some of your translations, Abraham's bosom. By the way, this is, a, this is a, a, a pearly gate story. All right, you know, we know this. Guy dies, he goes to heaven, he gets some pearly gates. And who does he meet there? Peter, right? Well, okay, well, the Hebrew version of it, you'd meet Abraham. Why? Well, Abraham's the father of the Hebrew people. So the angels came and carried Lazarus to Abraham's side, and that is a metaphor for the most honored place at a banquet feast. The most honored guest seat at a banquet, carrying him to Abraham's side. A reversal. Of circumstances and verse 23 says in hell where he was in torment and that's the rich man and right there right there is where some people stop reading close the bible and, and check out yeah because you know they say hey all right this is why i quit going to church this is why I stopped reading the Bible, because when I read this, I mean, this, this truly is a parable of indifference. It's the parable of a cruel deity who is indifferent to the cry of a, someone who says he's sorry, because, you know, the rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and, and I, and you know, so the, 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 the notion that we have uh, is uh, hell being inhabited by people who finally kind of wake up and smell the coffee, and they want to get out, and God is, you know, slam the lid shut, <laughs> and that's, you know, you know. It's enough to make people just, eh, no thanks, and if that's how you feel, Uh, I understand. Um, I do. Um, Can we just take a closer look at these verses here? What follows in this parable are three conversational exchanges between rich man and Father Abraham. Verse 24 begins, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Well, that's okay. All right, that's... All right, that's a good start. Okay, well, but what kind of pity does he want? What kind of pity does he want? Verse 24. Well, well, uh, you know, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. What? Yeah, yeah. Look, Father Abraham, now that Lazarus' condition has improved and he's up and about, I'd like some room service. So now see to it that he gets me some water and hurry up about it because I'm a little bit uncomfortable in here. See, rich man still thinks that he can boss around the very man he hurt. I mean, isn't that what we just read here? There's no apology. Did you read an apology there in that? Rich rich man man doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He he knows who he is, but he, he won't even address him. Why? Because Lazarus is an untouchable. And rich people don't talk to untouchables. Instead, rich man plays the family card. Father Abraham. The family's everything in the Middle East. Rich man appeals to Abraham as a family member for pity, but then notices what he want. notice what he wants. Notice what he wants. He doesn't want out. Does he say, get me out of here? He doesn't say that. He says, get him over here to me. Send Lazarus. Instead of apologizing, he demands service from the very man he refused to help. Unbelievable. He still thinks he's in charge. If you're taking notes, I would title this first exchange, He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. And Abraham responds, As a father, son, literally, dear child, you know, He says, you know, remember in your life you you received good things. You received, you didn't earn it. God gave it. You received it. See. James chapter one tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And my son, you received these good gifts from God and you turned them to evil. You turned them to evil on Lazarus and now he is comforted notice it says now he's comforted not not now his belly is full or not now he's healed but now he's comforted that's relation that's a relationship verb you see alleviating poverty is not merely a matter of throwing money over the fence here now get out of my face no Lazarus' greatest ache came from how rich man ignored him at that gate. And so now in heaven, Lazarus is no longer within earshot of a banquet that produces garbage, which he longs to eat but can't because the dogs are lapping it up. You see, the sin was not his wealth, but that he hoarded his wealth. The sin was not that he ate at the banquet table, but that he ate at the banquet table while a brother in the community starved to death only a few feet away. Why was he there at the gate? Because Richman was the only one in the village who could help him. That's why. But Richman won't give up. He won't give up. And so, you know, if he can't get room service. In verses 27 and 28, he wants Abraham to make out Lazarus to be an errand boy. I'm going to send him on an errand for me. Then again, no apology, no repentance. You know, go warn my brothers. Why, because obviously they're around the table. And if you're taking notes, I would title exchange number two. He still doesn't get it. And in verse 29, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen. Listen. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. And if these brothers will just get off their cushion and go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, they'll hear God's word. And God's word has plenty to say about helping those who are helpless, about speaking for those who have no voice. Ah, but rich man is not used to being told no. And so, he tries to correct Father Abraham. <laughs> yeah. he tries to correct him. No, Father Abraham, no, no, no. No, but if someone from the dead, (laughs) are you getting this? To the very end, rich man still wants Lazarus to do his bidding. To the very end, rich man still thinks he's in charge. If you're taking notes, I would title exchange number three, he's never going to get it. He doesn't get it. He still (laughs) doesn't get it. He's never going to get it. And there's a word for that, and it's the word denial. And church family, that's what hell is full of, denial. And, and this is in, an important point to remember, and here's why. Uh, this summer during my study break, I uh, had a stack of books that uh, I needed to read, And one of the books uh, is a book that's been going around in churches and among Christians about uh, heaven and hell, and it is called Love Wins. And um, I wanna show you two sentences. I think that these two sentences uh, fairly, in in a fair way, um, summarize the content of the book. If you boil the book down, If you boil a coffee down to the stain at the bottom of the cup, here's these two sentences, I think, is what the author's big idea is. Uh, The author's perspective. And this this is what it says. At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every heart. And the implication there is that whether, you know, whether in this life or the next life, okay, that the love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners, you know, whether in this life or the next life, will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. I think that fairly accurately summarizes the, what the author is trying to convey in the book Love Wins. And, you know, I, I, count, I, I count this author as a brother uh, in the Lord, and I ask myself the question, all right, what's the truth source behind such thinking? What's the, what's the truth source? What's, what's, where's the author, you know, where's the foundation behind this? Because I don't see that in Scripture. I don't. Uh, Yes, I do see John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son to condemn the world but so that through him the world might be saved. So, you know, God's heart is uh, through the sending of his son to save the world. And and I get that. And, And I get what the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I would gladly trade my eternity for the, for the lives of of uh, my my brothers and sisters, my countrymen. I'm not. I'm not sure I can say that. So I mean, that's there. And in addition to that, church family, the picture that we have of hell by Jesus' own words is one where a certain rich man saw Lazarus enjoying a banquet at Abraham's side and yet none of his indifference changed, none. And if the fires of hell won't change his indifference, what in the world would make him think that a resurrection would? And that's why Abraham says if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced. Even if someone rises from the dead, Someone has said that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Where God finally says to you know to those in hell thy will be done. See? And I think that's why CS Lewis said that hell uh, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. You see, that's why I think this uh, this could be titled "The Perils <laughs> of Indifference." I mean. And Jesus' point is clear, church family, for his disciples, for those who are, are heirs in the kingdom, indifference is not an option. It's not. When God gives us the chance to help the helpless, he wants us to help. It's that simple. He wants us to help. That's why Romans chapter 12, verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. That's why Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. When God gives us the chance to help the helpless, He wants us to help. Now, I want to try to answer a, que- a question in our remaining moments here, and it's the question, it's this, this is an important question. What kind of help truly helps what kind of help truly helps and uh lisa Sheltra, our uh, community outreach director uh, gave me another book that uh, i needed to read over my study break and uh, it's an excellent book and it's called when helping hurts how to alleviate poverty without hurting the poor and yourself and it answers this question what kind of help truly helps i recommend this book Uh, the author First of all, talks about what kind of help doesn't help. And the author uses a word, uh, I uh, put it before you, it's the word paternalism. Paternalism. And the author defines paternalism as you know, um, paternalism happens when we do things for people that they can do themselves. And so, you know, the counsel is don't do that don't do things for people that they can do themselves. And there's different kinds of paternalism. The book talks about resource paternalism, you know, throwing money at the problem. Here's some money that get on my face. Uh, Then there's a form of spiritual paternalism. Uh, uh, Spiritual paternalism is the assumption that the poor have no spiritual maturity at all. And that's a form of arrogance, isn't it? And then there's knowledge paternalism. And and that's the assumption that, you know, the helper has all the best ideas about how to do things. (laughs) And uh, an excellent illustration in this book concerned a short-term missions team from America who went to an impoverished country to build a home for an impoverished pastor. And on the blueprints, uh, the bathroom was in the middle of the home. And the pastor kindly asked if they could put the bathroom at the back of the house. And I'm sure that, you know, this short-term missions team said this politely. But nonetheless, they said, no, this is how we do it. Uh, This will be better for you. Well, this impoverished pastor nodded. And when the team left, uh, there was left a very nicely built house with a wonderful bathroom that no one uses. And then there's labor paternalism, doing work for people that they can do themselves. And then, uh, and then there's managerial paternalism. And I uh, have to confess, uh, well, this among probably others that uh, of of these categories that I've I've needed work on. But managerial paternalism, and, and it, it, you know, we uh, middle to upper class um, folks. Who like to get it done, Americans, want to take charge, you know, particularly when it looks like no one else is moving fast enough, and so, you know, we want to take over, you know, when, you know, they can do it themselves, it just happens at a different pace, and I confess to you, um, I, I have felt this, I have felt this uh, when we participate in Jesus' days, Because I show up and I just want to let's get it done. Come on, let's get this done. Well, why? Well, so that I can get on with the rest of my day. Because I got to work out. I got to take a nap. I got to finish for Sunday. Come on, let's just get this done. Let's get this done. And Irvin has a completely different agenda. And the agenda is let's be together, let's have some community. Let's. Let's be family, you see. You see? So paternalism doesn't help. Paternalism doesn't help, all right? So, so what does help? What does help? And the authors talk about three kinds of help that truly helps. And the first is relief, relief. And by that, I mean urgent, temporary emergency aid to relieve suffering, I'm talking about good Samaritans stop the bleeding kind of relief. I'm talking about the receiver can't help himself, so he needs help. This is Lazarus. But often we think of relief help as the only kind of help, and it's not. Uh, other times, help can and should take the form of rehabilitation. And this is where we work with victims and clients To restore some positive elements to the pre-crisis level. You see, the fact of the matter is, Lazarus didn't merely need food and clothing. He needed a friend. He needed comfort. Isn't that what he received by Lazarus' side? He needed comfort. He needed someone who would welcome him into their life and walk with him toward well-being. Interestingly, uh, one scholar in my research here suggested that there's important symbolism between a rich man and his five brothers, which equals six, and that is a number in the Bible thought of as uh, representing evil. And what if rich man had invited Lazarus to his table? The sum would have been seven, a symbolic number of completeness and perfection. You see, poverty alleviation is more than just about money. It's about community. Relief, rehabilitation, and then development. Development, the process of ongoing change ongoing change that involves moving not only the ones who are helped but those who are helping toward a closer walk with God to God and with one another and that helps both the helpers and those helped and, and, and let me just tell you much of our weekend of service projects are in this third category we are working with and for those places with whom we have a partnership and the result is not only that God shows up in their lives but in ours as well and we come, not with all the answers, because we have come to these projects with their permission, and with their input, and, and with their participation, and they're helped and blessed, and we're blessed in giving help. And this is why we're returning to some of the 2009 Weekend of Service sites. We want to be about relationship building. And this is why not all of our sites are about construction. They're about community They're about training. They're about helping the under-resourced know where resources can be found. And this is why we need to appreciate the world in which the working poor live. And this is why I really would like 40 of you, after second service, to go to the garage and participate in our poverty experience. Uh, You know... Some of us, an hour from now, you know, some of us are going to be eating at, you know, at the original pancake house or whatever. You know, scrap that plan, will you please? Go to the garage, just show up, it's okay. Show up, and in a two, two and a half hours, you're going to have an experience which will help you appreciate the world in which the working poor live. When God gives us the chance to help the helpless, he wants us to help. And the reason why is because he is our help. He is our help. And when our identification is in him and in his help, that's what's going to last forever. Are you is that who you're thought of, you know? The beauty? The rich man? The talented person? Is that is that is that your identification? or is God, is my help, your ID? Well, who are you? Who are you? What is it that gives you worth? What's your life's purpose? Huh? You know who Jesus' original audience was? The Pharisees. It's there. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money. Who were the Pharisees? The pastor's I've just been having a conversation with myself here for the last 35 minutes. If you want to listen in. Let me ask you this, who is your Lazarus? Do You got a Lazarus in your life? Someone who needs relief? Someone who needs rehabilitation? Someone who needs development? You know, maybe we need to move beyond relief. Maybe we need to move beyond that to the other two categories. And it takes wisdom to know, okay, what would be wise to help this person move along? And some of you may be thinking, you know, Randy, there's just so many needs. I just have compassion fatigue, you know. I I understand that. Can I just can I just give you a sentence that has helped me from one who helped their whole lives? And it's this sentence right here. Do the thing in front of you. Do the thing in front of you, all right? Do the thing, you know, you know go to the garage here after second service, please, and, and be a part of the poverty experience, please. Go out in the foyer and sign up for a place at Weekend of Service, okay? Pick up David Platt's book, Radical. Do the thing in front of you. And if you really want to know how to get an eternal identification, if you really want to know how to get an... If you really want to know how God can be your help, you need to do what Abraham says here. Listen to the Word of God. Because when you listen to the word of God, you will hear of one who in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. When you hear the word of God, you will hear of one who suffered outside the city gate so that you wouldn't have to. You'll hear of one whose greatest impoverishment was being far off from the Father. Jesus on the cross did not say, my God, my God, the nails are killing me. Or my God, my God, the crown of thorns has given me a splitting headache. He said rather, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And rich man did not need to be far off because Jesus did that for him. Jesus did that for you. And the scriptures speak of one who did come back from death. Isn't it ironic What is not permitted in the parable, the gospel of Luke provides. God has raised Jesus from death, and he says, I am your help. And he has offered relief, relief from the justice of God, because he took that on himself, and I received grace. And he has offered not only relief, he has offered rehabilitation and development from his Holy Spirit who walks with and in me, in community, so that I can be more and more like Christ. Oh, church family, that's not indifference, that's love.